Well, good morning, everyone. As Steve said, my name is Ben. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. If you brought a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be studying this morning. As always, if you uh, didn't bring a Bible, there are some in the back of the room on a table back there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep one of those as your own. But John 14 is where we'll be studying this morning as we continue in our series, Grow, where we've been reading all the way through the Gospel of John this year. And uh, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context to what's uh, kind of happening around John 14. This conversation that we're going to read today happened on the night when Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. And so tomorrow he will be crucified, but on this evening of his death, he's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples one last time. And last week we read in John chapter 13 that as Jesus and his disciples were all seated around the table, uh, Jesus shared some disturbing news with them. He told them that he was going away and that they couldn't come with him. He told them that, that one of them was going to betray him. And then he told Peter specifically that he would deny our Lord three times before morning came. And so having heard these things, you can imagine what the mood was like in that room. It was heavy. There was certainly an amount of uh, disturbance and confusion, some fear and discouragement. This is not at all how the disciples thought things would play out. They thought that Jesus had come to establish a, a physical, political kingdom here on earth, and they were going to rule with him, and it was going to be awesome, and Rome would finally be overthrown. But now it's becoming clear that none of that is going to happen. Not right now, anyway. And so it's into that tension that Jesus spoke these words of John chapter 14. Into the confusion and the discouragement, Jesus said this. Let me read it for you, starting in verse 1. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I pray for us this morning? Father God, I I thank you this morning uh, that you are a God who has revealed himself to us. And Lord, we know that that one of the, the major ways you've done that is through your word. You've given us your word, the Old Testament and the New Testament Uh, to teach us about you, to teach us your ways, to teach us, Father, how to live on this earth. And and I'm so thankful that you did that, God. I'm so thankful that we can turn to your word, that we can trust your word, and that it points us directly to you. And so I pray this morning, God, as we open your word, would you open our hearts and open our minds to receive the truth within? And Father, would you find us faithful to obey what we read today? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, one of the things that I love about God's Word, I hope it's something that you love about God's Word, is just how practical it is. The fact is there isn't a situation that we experience in life, there isn't a season that we will walk through on earth that the Bible doesn't have something to say about. And that's especially true in this passage from John 14 because these opening verses address a very common problem, and it's the problem of a troubled heart. What do we do with our troubled hearts? And the fact that God's word speaks to the troubled heart is good news because none of us are immune. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to read in John chapter 16 where Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so if you've come this morning with any kind of idea that following Jesus means a trouble-free life, that's just not true. Jesus actually told us the exact opposite. And not only that, but he was talking to his own disciples when he said that. In this world, you, follower of Jesus, you, Christian, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, the problem with this world is that it's been broken by sin. And it's now marked by things like violence and sickness and wars and insecurity. These are all a result of sin. And it's certainly more than enough to cause a troubled heart. But what makes it even worse is that we have this tendency to also imagine trouble. I'm guilty of this. And I can tell you for sure that imagining how things might play out is usually far worse than the reality right? It's all of the the what ifs. What if this happens? And and what if that happens? And it's amazing how easily our minds can run away with all of the possibilities uh, and the potential troubles of this life. And it all ultimately leads to a troubled heart. And so how do you respond when the troubles of this world, both real and imagined, come and, and overwhelm you? People react in a lot of different ways, Uh, Some people just try to uh, ignore it and pretend it's not there. I I have a good friend who often responds this way. uh, And there have been times when I absolutely knew their world was coming undone. But if you asked them how they were, the the response was always the same. I'm good. We're good. It is good. And uh, just very confidently, right? And I'm just like, no, you're not. You're pretending, right? You're ignoring what's going on. Other people respond to the troubles of life in a different way. Some, some people self-medicate, things like drugs and, and alcohol, uh, or even less notorious things like food or getting lost in social media. Those things can be an escape, just whatever it takes to get away from the realities of life and uh, to find some kind of temporary relief. Still other people face trouble in this world, and they just seem to unravel. And they really become toxic, just taking everything out on others. And it's this attitude that if I'm going to be miserable, you're going to be miserable. And and that's how they manage the trouble of this life. But Jesus offers a completely different approach. Look again at at John 14. He gives us his answer right at the beginning in verse 1, where he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so according to Jesus, the remedy for a troubled heart is just one thing. And that one thing is belief. It's belief. And notice that he starts with a command. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's a command. It's an action. It's the opposite of just sitting by and letting trouble overwhelm your heart. 
The truth is we often can't control our circumstances, but we can always control the way that we respond to them. And Jesus says the right way to respond is to believe. When trouble comes, believe in God. Believe also in me. And just to be clear, to believe in God is to believe in Jesus. Jesus said in verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So believing in God and believing in Jesus go hand in hand. They cannot be separated because Jesus and the Father cannot be separated. So this is the command and and this is the cure for a troubled heart. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Instead, believe in God. Believe in Jesus. There's a a, a writer and author named Martin Lloyd-Jones who comments on the importance of belief in his book, Spiritual Depression. And uh, I want you to listen to what he writes. He says, We are never told anywhere in Scripture that we are saved by our feelings. We are told that we are saved by believing. Never once are feelings put into the primary position. Now this is something we can do. I cannot make myself happy, but I can remind myself of my belief. I can exhort myself to believe. I can address my soul as the psalmist did in Psalm 42. That is the way. And then our feelings will look after themselves. See, Lloyd-Jones recognizes the difference between our feelings, that's our troubled heart, and and belief. And he, he knows the tendency that we have to put feelings in the primary place, to elevate them to a place that, that they do not deserve to be in. But that's not the way to handle your troubled heart. The way to handle a troubled heart is to remind yourself what you believe about God. And he references uh, the psalmist and the way that the psalmist addressed his soul in Psalm 42. Let's look at that passage together because it's very similar to our text here in John 14. When it says in verse 5, the psalmist says to his soul, Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? You see, it carries that same idea. He's addressing a troubled soul or a troubled heart. And what's the remedy? He says, put your hope in God. Trust in God. Believe God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Then verse 6 says this, My soul is downcast within me. Okay, so he's being completely honest about the way that he feels. My soul is downcast. He's not trying to cover it up or to pretend. But then he gives us his method for overcoming. And he says, therefore, I will remember you. See, when we experience the troubles of this life, whatever they may be, and we're tempted to have a troubled heart, the way to overcome it is to remember God. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done and remember what he has promised to do. And this is something that over the last several months I've gotten into the habit of doing. Uh, As I'm beginning to pray each morning, this is something that, that I always start with. I always start by remembering God and reminding myself that he is all powerful. God created everything. He, he has power over everything, and he is sovereign over everything. I remind myself that God is all-knowing. He possesses all wisdom and, and all understanding. And I always think of the Adrian Rogers quote when he said, Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? Have you heard that before? Nothing occurs to God because he already knows everything. He has complete knowledge. 
And I remind myself that God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is before all things. He will be after all things. And in his power and in his knowledge and in his eternality, God has loved me. He sent his son to save me. I remember that Jesus loved me and gave his life for me, that he gave me his Holy Spirit, and he is not a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. And working through what I believe about God, I just I can't tell you what a difference it makes for me to calm my heart, to recenter my mind on what is true about God. When life seems overwhelming and we're threatened with a troubled heart, it's time to remember God. The truth is, I don't know how people face some of what they face in life without a deep belief in God, without knowing that he is in control, knowing that he is not confused, knowing that he has done the most important thing imaginable for us, giving his one and only son. And so as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, how will he not also give us all things? That's the reasoning, right? God has the power to do all things. He has done the most important thing in giving us his son. And so he will continue to work all things for our good. So do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's verse 1. And everything he says next flows out of and supports that command. In fact, Jesus is going to follow these words by giving us three more promises to believe. Let's take a look at what they are. Starting in verse 2, he says this. He says, My father's house has many rooms. Now let's pause right there. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, when he talks about his father's house, it's simply a reference to heaven. Okay, Warren Wearsby points out that Scripture uses a lot of different pictures to describe heaven. It's described as a kingdom in 2 Peter, an inheritance in 1 Peter, a country in Hebrews, and a city. And here in, in John 14, 2, it's described as a home. Heaven is home. It's our eternal home. And Jesus says that in heaven, in his Father's house, there are many rooms. And the Greek word that's translated here as rooms is the word mone, and it literally means dwelling places or abodes. There are many dwelling places in my father's house. And Jesus used this word, this figurative language, to communicate that in heaven there's room enough for everyone. William Barclay explains it by comparing it to a home here on earth, and he says, an earthly house becomes overcrowded. But it's not so with our Father's house, for heaven is as wide as the heart of God, and in heaven there is room for all. That's the first promise for overcoming a troubled heart. It's that in heaven there's room for you. In heaven there's room for you. You may have been shut out here on earth, but in heaven there's room for you. You may not get into the school you want. You may not get the job you want. You may not make the cut for the team you'd like to be on, but in heaven there's room for you. And that's really good news because heaven is the desire of every heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the human heart. It's in each and every one of us. And it's what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing. Listen to what he wrote about this. He says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, But more often I find myself wondering whether in our hearts we have ever desired anything else. 
It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives, our friends, or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. That longing, that desire for heaven is inside of you, and it's inside of me. And what Jesus is telling us by saying that his father's house has many rooms is that this desire can be truly fulfilled. There's room enough in heaven for you. That brings us to the second thing. It's also in verse 2. Jesus has said, my father's house has many rooms, and then he says this, if that were not so, Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now, I want you to pay attention to the wording of this second promise. The second promise for overcoming a troubled heart is that Jesus has prepared a place for you. Okay, you notice the tense is different, right? The passage says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm saying he has prepared a place for you. Why the difference? Well, to answer that, we have to consider what Jesus meant when he said this, okay? That's the key. If Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, does that mean that heaven is like a home improvement show on HGTV and Jesus is essentially the chip gains of eternity, right? And it's demo day. And so he's tearing out drywall and he's busting down walls and replacing fixtures and things are going to be beautiful. But right now it's really kind of a mess in heaven and everything's just in disrepair. Is that what it means? Is Jesus remodeling heaven, so to speak? I don't think so. I don't think heaven is in disrepair. Heaven is the one place where everything is as it should be. So if that's not what it means, then, then what? Well, I think it points to two things. First, we have to remember that Jesus spoke these words before he went to the cross. Okay, so here in John 14, sin has not yet been atoned for. Death has not yet been defeated, and Jesus has not yet ascended to be with the Father. We know the end of the story, but when Jesus spoke these words, this was all still future. The way was not yet opened. But as John Piper pointed out when he taught on this passage, every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is about to be removed in the next three days. In fact, one of the names that's given to Jesus in the New Testament book of Hebrews is that of our forerunner. He is the one who runs before us. He goes before us, and he opened the way to our place in heaven. That's the first sense that he was preparing a place for us. Through his death and his burial and his resurrection, Christ made the way possible. He is the way. But here's the other thing that it points to. When Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, we should always remember that without Jesus, there is no place for us in heaven. There is no possible scenario where God is in heaven and we are in heaven and Jesus is not. It is only because he died and rose again and ascended into heaven himself that we have any hope of being there at all. So in that sense, Jesus is our place in heaven. It is only in Christ that any of us will be in heaven. He is our place. And that's why in John 14, his words are future. I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
He had not yet ascended and joined the Father. He's telling his disciples he will make a way to the place, and he, when, once he is there, he will be our place. And then three days later, he made the way. And about 40 days after that, he left this earth and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So for the disciples, it was future, but for us, it's right now. Jesus made the way, and he is the way. He has made a place, and he is the place. Jesus has prepared a place for you. That's a promise you can believe. Now look at verse 3. Jesus goes on, and he says this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And the third promise for overcoming a troubled heart is to always remember that Jesus is coming back for us. Jesus is coming back for us. It's, why the, it's what the hymn writer Carl Boberg wrote about in the late 1800s in his famous hymn, How Great Thou Art. I bet many of you have sung that song a number of times in those great words that when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Jesus is coming back for us. And when he does, we will be with him forever. No one knows the day or time. It, it's foolish to even try and speculate about those things. But what's not foolish is to long for that day to anticipate that day and to look forward to the time of Christ's return. In fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We're to set our hope on that day. And Paul wrote in Colossians 3, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the promise that Jesus is coming back for us. And when he comes, we will be with him forever. And it's going to be amazing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined, says Paul, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And do you realize that it was this same desire and this same anticipation for heaven that enabled Jesus to suffer and to die? Hebrews 12.2 says that it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. And what was that joy? It was heaven. It was heaven. It was his soon reunion with his father in heaven. That gave him the strength to overcome his troubled heart and to endure suffering and death, even death on a cross. And so we cling to passages like Revelation 21.4. It gives us a, a picture of what heaven will be like. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's heaven. And those are incredible promises. But do you also know the verse right before that, Revelation 21.3, that tells us God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. David Guzek comments on this when he says, the entire focus of heaven is being united with Jesus. Heaven is not heaven because of streets of gold or pearly gates or even the presence of angels. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. 
Jesus is coming back for us so that we can be with him forever. That's the hope. That's the promise. And it brings us to the end of, of our passage today. And, and Jesus makes a statement here that causes some confusion in verse 4. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas replies to him and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Okay, notice that Thomas says, we don't know. Okay, so he, Thomas is the one speaking, but it's all of the disciples. They're all confused about this. We're, we don't know where you're going. How can we know where, the way to where you're going? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is really important. I want you to hear me clearly on this. These promises that we've looked at in John chapter 14, they are universally available, but they are not universally applied. Okay, they are universally available, but they are not universally applied. What does that mean? It means there's room enough in heaven for everyone, but not everyone will be there. It means that there's a place prepared, but it doesn't guarantee everyone's arrival. It means that Christ is coming back for us, but it doesn't mean that we'll all be ready. In the 14th century, Thomas A. Kempis wrote this. He said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus didn't just make a way, he is the way. Jesus didn't just speak truth, he is the truth. He didn't simply offer life, he is the life. But if he isn't your way, if he isn't your truth, if he isn't your life, these promises are not applied to you. But I want you to hear me clearly on this. They are available to you. Go back to John chapter 1. Read again verse 12. That the, to those who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, born of God and heirs to all the promises of heaven. That can be true of you today. That can be true today. It is not universally applied, but it is universally available. And today can be the day that you believe and receive and become an heir of all of these promises. I'd love to talk to you more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll be up front after the service. Come on up front and let's talk more. But to those here this morning who have believed and received Christ, you are already children of God. You are already heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So I say to you this morning, do not let your hearts be troubled. Remember God. Believe in God. Remember what you believe about God. Remember his power. Remember his wisdom. Remember his eternality. Remember that he has loved you and given his son for you, that Jesus loved you and gave his life for you, that he has given you his spirit and he is a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And remember these promises of John 14, that there's room in heaven for you, that Christ has prepared a place for you. He has made a way and he is the way. He has prepared a place and he is the place and he is coming back for us. And when he does, we will be with him forever. This is the way.
to overcome the troubled heart. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you. I thank you for for all of your attributes, God. The things we've recognized and remembered here this morning. You are omnipotent. Father, you are omniscient. You are omnipresent. Father, all power, all knowledge, everlasting. And because of that, God, you cannot be undone. Your plans cannot be stopped. You are the highest. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. You are over everything. You are in control. And so, Father, as as we come to you this morning, undoubtedly some in this room come with a troubled heart. And, Father, we remember that you are high above that you have power over every situation, whatever that situation might be. I pray that we would remember it this morning, that we may be confused, but you are not wringing your hands in heaven wondering how this is going to play out, God. You understand fully. And Father, that there is a day coming because of what you've done for us in giving us your son and what Jesus has done for us in dying for us, that the troubles of this world will be over. And we will be with you forever forever in heaven where there will be no more crying or pain or mourning and we will be with you forever, God. Help us to set our hearts on heaven this morning. And Father, though our circumstances may not change at all, let our hearts change completely. Let our hearts be settled on you. Father, I pray that this morning in Jesus' name and it's in his powerful name I say, amen.